the three of them add something, Sam Neill and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum with Pratt and Dallas Howard's also coming back and being sold as the ending. I think that's going to sell some tickets in a way that just having a, a basic third movie wouldn't have. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Danny Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Here today with two guests, well, let's call them co-hosts really because they're here with us often. We've got Sean Robbins, uh, chief analyst here at Box Office Pro, who will be going over that second weekend performance of Top Gun Maverick here in the domestic market, a fantastic record-setting hold for a film of its stature. And we've also got a couple of previews here looking at the overseas performance of Jurassic World Dominion, which opened in 15 markets last weekend. It's opening here in North America this weekend. Sean Robbins is going to be providing his latest forecasts for that film. And then in our feature segment, we've got Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, joining us once again to go over the box office history of Jurassic Park at the movies, we're going to be looking at those box office performances and the social and cultural impact of the franchise over the years. So let's take it away. Uh, Sean, it was a good weekend for me. Uh, the Phillies, the baseball team that I follow, actually won this weekend, which is a, a nice change of pace. Uh, how was the weekend for you? Did you make it to the movies? Uh, unfortunately I didn't. I was hoping to go see Maverick again before it leaves IMAX, but I, I told myself, I think they're going to find a way to bring that back to IMAX throughout the summer. So decided to take the weekend off with a lot of other movies coming out in the next few weeks. Oh, they have to find a re-release for it. I, I saw it on IMAX. I saw it yeah. on Dolby, uh, on Dolby cinema. I have to tell you, I also saw it on screen X, the panoramic screen format. It's got nearly an hour of exclusive footage on Screen X. It's the best movie I've seen in that panoramic screen format. I know several exhibitors here in the U.S. have that. Uh, you have B&B Theaters. Uh, you have Regal also having a footprint in that format. I know you're there in Tennessee, Sean. That's my hot tip for the weekend. If you can catch it on IMAX, it's awesome. Screen X, also worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. I fortunately have one of each very close to me, and I started with Dolby, knowing that IMAX and, and ScreenX would build on that experience. So it's it's kind of part of my long-term strategy of seeing this movie a few times. I've seen this thing four times now in different formats, having a different experience in each type of auditorium that I go to, and that's reflected in the box office numbers. Sean, I'm not the only one seeing this more than once. Great hold from this movie domestically. Yeah, 90 million in its second weekend with final results, which was just 29% down from its opening weekend. And that, I mean, there, there really are no more, no more adjectives to describe how incredible that is for a sequel to a movie that opened over a holiday weekend, essentially had about a day and a half's worth of grosses ahead of Friday rolled into that opening weekend. And it still manages to prove very much the opposite of front-loaded. It's bringing back people over and over, especially a, a demographic we've talked so much about, adults over 35. This is their Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, this is that movie that is is reinvigorating the big screen experience in a major way. And I haven't talked to anyone yet who hasn't loved the film on some level. We have to call it what it is. This is the best case scenario by far for by this far. movie. <laughs> really, just I think overperforming. It's fair to say every expectation we've had 
Is that the case here domestically, Sean? Did you ever imagine yeah. this hitting the heights it's hitting? Not at this point. I think the opening weekend always, you know, that seemed like, okay, it can get there, but where does a big movie like that go? We typically expect a front-loaded run. This is now the the best second weekend holdover for any film that's opened over $100 million in its first weekend. Wow. And that's saying something. Yeah. And that, you know, that follows in line with Tom Cruise films, who traditionally, especially the Mission Impossible movies, even though they are moderate to, to high openers, they still have legs. Maverick is in its own stratosphere and still has legs so far. Uh, so this is really just, you know, a career highlight, an industry high point for a movie that has really been a long time coming down the pike. And it was always very hard to dis- determine what its ceiling would be. And we're seeing it play out right now. And I have to tell you, I think it's the same case as we look at these overseas numbers where we already have $261.6 million coming outside the domestic market. We always expected this because of the subject matter to be a big play here in North America. But these overseas figures, they're really, really performing very well. We've got the United Kingdom leading all markets outside of the US and Canada with 48.4 million, followed by Australia with 23.5 million, Japan in third place with 22.4 million. As we know, Tom Cruise actually flew into Japan personally to promote this movie. That paid off. We're seeing with actions like that how a major star and their willingness to promote a film in specific overseas markets can impact. Uh, France, where of course Tom Cruise was there at the Cannes Film Festival, also one of the top performers, 21.6 million. And that list of top overseas markets rounded out by Germany, which is now up to 13.1 million. Really incredible results for this movie that has already made 557.2 million worldwide. Sean, there's no point of reference here with a Tom Cruise movie performing like this, uh, period. Yeah, I mean, at this point, this is obviously heading to being his top performer worldwide and domestically. And that's just, it's its a remarkable achievement. There's really no other way to say it. Well, that's a great performance. And I do have to ask, now that we're entering the Jurassic World Dominion part of the calendar, we're probably not going to see this repeat at number one. Uh, what do you think that <laughs> third week hold uh, for Top Gun Maverick is going to be looking like? That one's going to be a little interesting because, you know, there, there are two conflicting things going on here. Incredible word of mouth for that movie but it's also going to lose a a very large share, almost most of its premium footprint, IMAX especially, Dolby especially. That will knock off a lot of the higher ticket prices, and this is all because of Jurassic World opening. So we we look at the audience for that movie, and and while Jurassic is is typically more for quad and Top Gun was expected to be more adult skewing, I think it's probably safe to say Top Gun is expanding its audience with these kinds of numbers so far. I, I think we just kind of have to brace for a little bit of a sharper drop, certainly far more sharp than, than last weekend, but it will level off pretty quickly. This is a movie that I think will keep playing through the summer. And as we as we discussed, probably regain some premium screens once Paramount has that negotiation ability and in, into in the second weekends of Jurassic and and Lightyear and all of these other movies opening. So expect a sharper drop, but a very quick leveling out is what I would say at this point. 
And we actually have some comparisons to see how both these films perform when they're playing at multiplexes at the same time. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Jurassic World Dominion opening in its first 15 overseas markets over the last weekend. Uh, it was an interesting opening weekend here, Sean, with the movie making $55.7 million. Uh, excluding previews, that's around $46 million for Jurassic World Dominion. That's more or less in line with the previous two Jurassic World films in this same number of markets. Uh, now, the two top performing markets for Jurassic World Dominion, where Top Gun Maverick is already in release, uh, are Mexico and Brazil. In Mexico, Jurassic World opened very, very strongly. It actually made 18.1 million across its first five days. That's Universal's biggest opening weekend of all time in Mexico, and it is well ahead every other opening weekend in this Jurassic Park franchise. A really, really strong start in Mexico, where it took 82% of that market share, opened at number one at every single theater in the country. Meanwhile, uh, Top Gun Maverick, a different sort of draw in Mexico. Uh, that movie made 1.9 million in comparison. A big, big, that steep drop that we talk about in Mexico. Top Gun Maverick, not a massive, massive hit in Mexico. It's made $7.7 million so far in that market. And on a related note, we see a similar performance over in Brazil, where Jurassic World opened to $4.3 million over the weekend, splitting it more competitively with Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick actually took $2.9 million in the market in Brazil in second place. That QM for Top Gun Maverick in Brazil right now standing at $9.6 million. What's it looking like so far for that opening weekend in the U.S. and Canada? Right now, I think we we're looking at the Top Gun factor and as well as reviews starting to come out, which have been embargoed and are still embargoed for a lot of domestic critics. Uh oh. Uh, even though we're starting to get more reactions. Yikes. Uh, that is usually yeah. uh -oh. usually a concern. That is tempering expectations. I think a few weeks ago, certainly recently, there has been a wide range. But looking at the nostalgia factor, we could maybe see this hitting the high 100 million. To Maybe, maybe flirting with 200 million. I would say some models have shown that to be possible. I wouldn't rule that out, but as we get closer, I don't, I don't think we can set the bar there. I think we, we really have to look at what's going on specifically in the domestic market with Top Gun and the fact that while the nostalgia play with the original cast will help Dominion, Fallen Kingdom, mixed reception, I think safe to say a lot of people liked it, but it wasn't as popular as the prior movie. And, you know, we're going into this now with a sequel a trilogy ender that if it has any kind of mixed reception immediately after a movie like Maverick, that's going to, to really hold it back. So to me, the bar at this point is 148 million. That's what fallen kingdom opened to four years ago. I think dominion goes over that. Uh, it would be surprising if it didn't, <laughs> the question is how high it can go. This is not really a, a big pre-sales franchise like a star Wars or a Marvel or a DC. So we can't read into those too much. This is a four quadrant movie and kids, kids love dinosaurs. doesn't matter how gory or PG 13 movie these movies get. Uh, I see a lot of families turning out for this movie over the weekend. So there's some volatility there. And, but I, I think just to be cautious with, with what we're seeing about that movie specifically and what we've already seen from, from Maverick, maybe it's good to be, you know, temperate in expectations right now. It's so hard to say what that impact of Top Gun Maverick's success 
is going to look like for Jurassic World Dominion. As you mentioned, it's performing well above expectations. It's holding on very, very strongly at the box office. We've got those data points I brought up earlier. You've got Mexico, where Jurassic World really overshadowed the week three of Top Gun. Then you have Brazil, where it was a lot more competitive with those two titles in the market. I don't know, Sean, for me, it can go either way. Um, I can see uh, some audiences uh, basically choosing to go see Top Gun Maverick because of the word of mouth on week three, uh, maybe being a little bit scared of whatever the review embargo uh, reveals later on this week. But at the same time, I got to tell you, for those people like myself that saw Top Gun Maverick several times, that for many fell back in love with that movie going experience and that emotional roller coaster that you got from Top Gun Maverick, this might be a really good option of saying, hey, let's go back to the movies and see something yeah. else. How do you think this could possibly play out? Are you leaning one way or the other with this? I was, I think up to a certain point. It's just as the more we hear reception and reviews, I will back up and say that that kind of happened with Fallen Kingdom. And mm -hmm. It ended up overperforming what we would think based on the reviews that came out before it four years ago. So there is there is a history here with Jurassic movies being somewhat critic proof. But I also look at the first trilogy uh, and it's it saw diminishing returns each time out. Lost World was not nearly as big as the first film and Jurassic Park three was a significant step down even from the Lost World. I think without the, the legacy cast coming back for Dominion, that was inevitably going to happen for the Jurassic World trilogy. The three of them add something, Sam Neill and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum with Pratt and Dallas Howard's also coming back and being sold as the ending. I think that's going to sell some tickets in a way that just having a, a, a basic third movie wouldn't have. And to your point, I, I think a lot of people who have been rediscovering that movie going experience, especially adults who have maybe seen Maverick twice. Now they're like, I want to go see uh, Jurassic. You know, I, I grew up with that. I think there will be some of that in place. So that's why I absolutely just can't rule out some, some very 11th hour kind of late buildup in sales. Mm. Jurassic world has been known to do with both films previously. Well, it'll be an exciting result and you'll be able to find out everything that happens this weekend at the box office at boxofficepro.com. Our weekend box office article comes out on Sunday at around noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific time. If you log on, you'll be able to find out how this weekend plays out here at the box office. Sean, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. And coming up next, we've got Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which is an arm of our company specialized on bringing editorial content for movie theaters to engage with moviegoers. We'll be going over the box office history of Jurassic Park at the movies. And we're back here with Russ Fisher from the Box Office Studios. Russ, uh, I'm excited to talk about this franchise, which is, I don't know if it's a bit unfair of me to say, a very, very, very good first movie and then everything else. Is that is that too dismissive? Am I being too no. mean here? I think that's on point. I would go so far as to say that this two trilogies pasted together, obviously, but I think it's maybe unique in the sense that it's a six movie series where people really only like the first movie and the first movie is so <laughs> effective and so big that it carries five other movies on its back. And I think there's such goodwill towards Jurassic Park, the original movie 
that people are willing to forget how they feel about the other movies. I remember the first one perfectly. Yeah. Beat by beat, I can tell you every single scene in the first Jurassic Park and very vague recollection of the sequels that follow it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I don't think you're alone. I mean, I'm the same way. And I obviously the, the Jurassic World movies must have their fans. But I think that without Jurassic Park, the original movie being what it is, we don't have any of this other stuff. And certainly we don't have, you know, a sixth movie in wide release. So let's start at the beginning. Let's go back to June 11th, 1993, with the opening of Jurassic Park at the movies. Before we get into the film itself, it's based on a Michael Crichton novel uh, released in 1990. Uh, I've never read the book, but Michael Crichton in the podcast that we had recently on the Tom Cruise box office history, you name dropped him as one of those best selling authors, this sort of like beach read the blockbuster uh, pipeline that used to exist in the 1990s. He was a big name. How much of a following did that novel have in 1990? Crichton was, uh, he was a big name. He, you know, and he was one of those guys who was interesting in that he straddled books and movies in a way that not a lot of other people did. Crichton straddled worlds in a way that was unique. And so the idea of Jurassic Park becoming a, mo a movie was a, kind of a no-brainer. Like, obviously, that was going to happen. And you mentioned that involvement of Michael Crichton at the movies. The first movie that he chose to direct is one that has, and no pun intended here, but a lot of shared DNA with Jurassic Park. He directs uh, the original Westworld, which is now maybe more commonly known as an HBO uh, television series. Originally a film directed by Michael Crichton in 1973. One of my favorite movies uh, of that era, of that pre-Star Wars Hollywood. Uh, a lot of those themes of... Uh, theme park gone wrong, of this sort of capitalist expansion and commercialization of a period of history gone haywire. I really love Westworld, and we see a lot of those themes still survive to this day somewhere in the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World formula. I don't think we can talk about Jurassic Park without talking about Crichton's involvement in the cinema, and specifically with that first directorial outing, Westworld. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's I was a fan of Westworld as a kid. I saw that movie certainly before I saw a lot of other stuff. It was it was on TV a lot. Certainly early days of cable, Westworld was on all the time. It had some really striking images in it. And you know, at a time when uh, you know, I became a big Star Wars fan very early. I you know, I saw that movie when it was in theaters. Initially, I was 5, you know, and so consequently, sci-fi was a big deal, and there wasn't nearly as much of it then. And so Westworld was a prime example. Uh, and, you know, because my house was a house in which Westerns were always on, Westworld was like the perfect middle ground. And so, yeah, like I can just echo everything you said. You're spot on with the with the overview of the themes being common and or the themes being shared and they're they're potent in Westworld and I think they're even more powerful in Jurassic Park. And I think personally that's what still draws me back to the franchise beyond the spectacle of the dinosaurs. 
And it's so interesting to talk about this first movie in this way, because this is a franchise where Michael Crichton, I don't think is even mentioned at all when we talk about the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World phenomenon. But at this point in development, it is the Michael Crichton brand that Steven Spielberg latches onto, and that makes it a, a blockbuster. Spielberg, Crichton doing Westworld with dinosaurs. How can this fail? It looks amazing. And the results are actually really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, at this point, Crichton was powerful and he, he knew he had something good too. You know, he negotiated film rights at, prior to the book's publication. He knew where this was going. I think I think Spielberg was even interested prior to publication. I think he knew about the book before it was out. And there was a lot of interest. There was a bidding war. Multiple director talent pairs tried to do this. It went to Spielberg and Universal, obviously. But, you know, everybody knew this was going to be a thing. But then, yeah, you get Spielberg on. And like you said, suddenly now, well, not suddenly, but decades later, Crichton's name is basically out of the picture. It's so thoroughly a Spielberg effort, which is an interesting like transmogrification that happened, but that tells you about the power of the movie. And, you know, certainly I was there opening day for the movie. You knew at the time it was like, oh, digital effects, dinosaurs, the whole thing. You'd seen a trailer. And there are still few movie-going experiences to me that are comparable to that first shot of multiple dinosaurs walking across the frame in photorealistic effect. Those effects still stand to today, by the way. Those effects still look great. They really stood the test of time. And that's the and that's the Spielberg effect. You know, Spielberg knew what he was doing as far as how to present those images. Um, I think he understood. And he's working with great people. You know, he's working with Stan Winston, Phil Tippett, all this other crew. I think they understand the limitations of the effects. And they understood precisely how to photograph them and present them to an audience in a way that minimized the aspects that are not up to snuff in as much as there were any and uh, and just lets you see the, the glorious aspects of them. You know, it's a movie that in its marketing, it really followed that formula that we spoke about a couple of months back when we spoke about the box office history of the Batman movies, where you have a logo, just a visual logo. It doesn't have the title on it. And that logo is instantly recognizable and communicates everything you need to for this movie. That's of that T-Rex, that circle logo. That's still something to this day, as we look at this uh, marketing campaign for Jurassic World Dominion, is still very, very present. I actually don't think I've seen title art for Jurassic World Dominion. I think the legacy nostalgia goes back so strongly that they're using the same logo promotion to promote this movie. It was everywhere. You couldn't miss it. The hype around this movie was huge. I don't know who designed that logo, but I hope they've been given the industry recognition they deserve because it's one of the best <laughs> branding efforts ever. You know, it's in yeah. Nike swoosh territory. It is, you know, it's like there are very few things that are as recognizable and that communicates such an immediate thing as just like the circle and the and the T-Rex skull in it if you expand it to the whole logo it's fine but like that is a near perfect effort as far as branding goes and like you say yes it's still the thing decades later that the series is leaning on. I have an emotional reaction when I see the logo. That's yeah. how powerful it is. We're yeah. 
it evokes instantly the movie-going experience you had on that opening weekend after seeing the whole hype around the movie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's weird because now that you're asking, I don't, I saw it in the Boston area. That's where I was living at the time. I remember I, I lived in Waltham, Massachusetts at the time. And I remember like being in a convenience store in Waltham, like getting a soda, talking about the movie with friends afterwards. And now I can't remember where I saw it. I probably saw Jurassic Park at this mall that was up 128 uh, and where I saw a lot of it. Like I saw the Matrix there years later. I saw a lot of stuff there, but um, that's probably where I saw it. But TBH, I yeah, I don't remember the specific theater where I saw Jurassic Park. I remember the moments of being in the theater, but I, I weirdly, I couldn't tell you exactly where. I will always, always remember that trip to the movies. I was living in Guatemala at the time, 1993. I'm seven years old. It's the summer, and I was scared out of my mind in that opening sequence, in the torrential rain. It's dark. You don't see the T-Rex. This is Spielberg going back to Jaws in that opening sequence, right? Just atmospheric and you just catch a glimpse of that monster and i remember it so vividly russ i wanted to ask my dad sitting next to me to take me home i, I was bet. so scared but i forced myself i forced myself saying no i can do this i'm going to watch this thing and i stuck through it but it's still something to this day then that, that i remember scene by scene as a child responding to this thing i'm seeing on the screen and just being absolutely floored by it. You're older than I am, obviously, uh, watching this thing. Was it just as magical for you? I mean, it, it really worked. I think the thing that I did, being an above it all college student at the time, I think the thing that I didn't like about the movie and which I can now recognize is part of what really makes it work is the emphasis on the kids and which was more so in the movie than was, you know, their characters in the book, but, but it, it plays differently in, in, on screen. But I think Spielberg and screenwriter David Kep were very smart in leveraging those kids uh, because I think that's, they're part of what makes it work for someone like you, um, you yeah. know, for a younger audience, you're scared in that opening scene, which as you say, it's reminiscent of Jaws or E.T. You know, it's like Spielberg has this talent for doing this very elemental image building. And mm -hmm. every five or six years, he like really throws it out there and is like, oh yeah, I can show you something in a way that you've never, like you've never thought about it before. But the kids and, you know, some of those elements of of Jurassic Park are what really make it work in the end. And while the effects are good, while Spielberg's uh, eye for imagery is stunning, and it's really those characters, it's the cast. And I think that's why we're talking, you know, it's great that the effects hold up, but without... Jeff Goldblum without Sam Neill and Laura Dern, without all of these cast members, you're not still talking about this movie in the same way. You know, it's not what it is right. decades later. Yeah, I completely agree with you, especially with the anchoring of that holy trinity of a cast uh, with Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum pushing the narrative. And then the kids really anchor you emotionally in a way. And this is similar, although I, I was too young to see it at the time. Terminator 2, Judgment Day, I think works very effectively with James Cameron's decision to say, let's not make this a monster movie. I already did that with the first Terminator. Jurassic Park could have been the same thing, right? An unstoppable monster movie. 
but let's bring the kid element to sort of guide the moviegoer and ground it emotionally. So I, I look at those two movies released more or less, I think, what, like three, two, three years apart? Judgment Day came out, what, in 1991? 91, they're two so years apart, really. And it's an interesting, yeah. I, I think it's a very astute point. And I don't know that I've ever seen Spielberg talk about T2, but you got to guess that there's maybe a little bit of obviously you know Spielberg has used kids in his movies as identification characters many many times um but I think that element that you're talking about is is part of this and there's maybe something to the fact that T2 exert you know maybe not exerted some huge overt influence but maybe showed like hey this is a good way to make this work um and obviously some of what Cameron knows he learned from Spielberg so it's just a big cycle and the movie is a huge hit once it opens in 1993, a $47 million opening weekend. It goes on to make $357 million domestically in its original run in 1993. It is the top movie of the box office of that year. Uh, and what's fascinating to me as we look at the legacy of this movie is that it doesn't exist in a bubble. Michael Crichton builds on this movie in his own career as a writer. Uh, you've got Sam Neill, who shows up in The Piano in a fantastic performance in a fantastic film later on that year. And of course, Steven Spielberg, it might not even be the best movie he makes that year because <laughs> Schindler's List wins the Academy Award for this year, uh, later on in 1994, uh, an interesting sort of one-two punch, two very different movies, but we're talking about... I mean, not just that, he's prepping Schindler's List while he's shooting Jurassic Park. Like Those, those are two different worlds entirely. Those, I mean, that's those movies impressive. were created not just back-to-back, -back, but in some ways simultaneously. Like... Mm -hmm. He was shooting Schindler's while Jurassic Park was being finished. Like that was, you know, that was in the editing room. Michael Kahn's cutting Jurassic. I think Kahn did a, uh, he did an assembly cut of Jurassic really fast. Um, like they finished the movie ahead of schedule. Michael Kahn delivered an edit really quickly and Spielberg was able to bounce over to Schindler's. But I mean, he'd been working on Schindler's through the production of Jurassic Park. So it's not just like, oh, he had two movies in 1993. Like he made those two movies at the same time, which is remarkable by any measure. And especially when you look at those two films and how different they are, it's pretty special. And it's going to be actually another four years for Steven Spielberg to make another movie for the big screen after the release of that 1993 combo of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And surprise, surprise, it comes with... A sequel. Lost World is kind of a muddy effort. It feels like a sequel. It feels like a reach. I did not see this movie in theaters because even really? then wow. I was like, why? But this was uh, a huge, huge, I wouldn't say cultural moment. I don't think the film was good enough to, to bring that monitor to it, but it was an event. It was an event release when this came out. And you mentioned Steven Spielberg being maybe... Uh, arm's distance away from it. That's because after that great year he has in 1993, in 1994, uh, as we teased a little bit, Steven Spielberg decides to go deeper into the producing aspect of the role. And he is there when DreamWorks launches as a startup studio, basically. He's there in those early years. And that's why after hitting that zenith 
1993 with Jurassic Park, with Schindler's List, we don't see anything of him. In hindsight, natural to sort of see this movie coming out in 1997 with a Spielberg that doesn't look to be on top of his game. And this doesn't seem to have that delivery that many Spielberg movies that we'd associate usually have when this comes out. You know, you go from 1993 where Spielberg has arguably his biggest year ever. He has two of he creates two of his most memorable movies. And then in 97, he creates he directs two movies which are both largely forgotten. You know, you talk mm-hmm. about major Spielberg productions and it's neck and neck as to which one of these people think about less when they think about Spielberg movies. This is not his best year and The Lost World is very very far from his best movie. Yeah, a very forgettable film, The Lost World, even though the hype was definitely there. I was, at this point, living in Mexico. I remember seeing this on opening weekend at uh, Cinepolis's first location in my hometown of Querétaro uh, and being very disappointed with the movie that I saw. Even visually, the first film you associate with this lush green color, right, of that island. The sequel, I associate more with uh, darker colors, grays, blacks. To that point, you know, Jurassic Park was shot by Dean Cundey, who uh, was notable for being uh, John Carpenter's regular collaborator for years and years. And he had done a bunch of work, you know, he had done work with Spielberg kind of as a, you know, in, who was working as a producer capacity. You know, he he did, uh, Dean Cundey shot the Back to the Future movies uh, and some other stuff that, you know, a bunch of Zemeckis movies that Spielberg was involved in as a producer. Um, he shot Hook and he did Jurassic Park, but then Spielberg used Janusz Kaminski for Schindler's List. That was their first movie together. And Kaminski has been Spielberg's regular collaborator ever since. Mm. And he shot The Lost World as well. And I think very deliberately went in a darker direction to make it try not to feel like exactly the same thing as the previous movie. But I think maybe there was some overcorrection there and it went a little far. And I think, I think that's, one of many problems with The Lost World is that it it doesn't really pull you in. It doesn't have that kind of pop sensibility that the original movie had. Um, it didn't feel like a classic monster adventure movie in the way that the original movie did. And that it, it, that's not its only problem by any means, but it compounded other issues. Well, uh, two-thirds of that cast is missing. Sam Neill doesn't come back. Laura Dern doesn't come back. You've only got Jeff Goldblum. I remember watching it as a kid. I was very disappointed by that. I wanted to see Sam Neill back. I wanted to see Laura Dern back. I guess I wasn't aware that they weren't going to show up in the movie. I literally waited the entire thing, not waiting to see cool new dinosaurs. I waited to see the protagonists of those two other films. And I think it just goes to show you what the priority for the sequels have been up to this point, up to Jurassic World Dominion, that it looks like we're going back to that original formula a little bit with a legacy cast where the real stars of the movie aren't the characters at the heart of the film. That's what made the first movie work, I think. The real stars in the sequels are the dinosaurs and the stunts and the mortal sin that this second movie makes that so many Jurassic Park movies make is that they take the temptation of putting the dinosaurs in a city. The second you the dinosaurs leave the island, the second you have a dinosaur in a big city, That's the stupid version of this movie, and it has never worked. Not once in any of these sequels. 
The Godzilla movies are wonderful. I love them. The Jurassic Park sequels don't work when they try to be rip-off Godzilla movies, and this one makes that critical mistake. And I, that's reflected uh, in the box office, which does go down when this movie comes out in 1997. So the first one was the top movie of the year. This is still a very, very top performing movie. It opens actually better than the first movie, opening at $72 million on May 23rd, 1997, and plays out to $229 million domestically, but finishes behind Men in Black as the number two highest grossing title of 1997. So it's still, you know, above $200 million, but very far away from that 350 million plus that the first one has. This sequel has hype, but it doesn't have any of that magic from the original film. And I think it sets the series back a little bit. I think after this movie comes out, maybe after the experience of making it, of releasing it, Crichton and Spielberg exit the franchise on not the best note, unfortunately, but that doesn't mean that the series is dead because we've got Jurassic Park 3 that comes out four years later at a time. Uh, I don't know, Russ, how, how you experienced this when it came out. It seemed that by the time we get Jurassic Park 3, I had completely forgotten about Jurassic Park. It felt more <laughs> that I hadn't seen a Jurassic Park movie since 93, because the 97 sequel just didn't connect with me, that by the time 2001 rolls around, I kind of need a little bit of goading to go back to the theaters. So, you know, this movie's directed by Joe Johnson and he's like for years, he's kind of in that bridesmaid, never a bride kind of scenario. You know, mm -hmm. he's an effects guy. He's part of the Lucas and Spielberg crew. He co-created Boba Fett. I think the first test footage of the Boba Fett costume, it's Joe Johnson in the costume. Um, oh. You know, he did work on, uh, I think he worked on all three of the original Star Wars movies. He was one of the guys who won a, an Oscar for visual effects on Raiders. You know, it's like he's been in the Lucas and Spielberg camp forever. Uh, you know, he did direct other movies, you know, it's like he directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He directed The Rocketeer, um, The Rocketeer, which I think crucially was this like, you know, it's a comic book adaptation set in, I guess, is it the late, either late 30s or early 40s in Hollywood? I think it's the late 30s because it's really before we were part of World War II. Um, but it's like, I think if The Rocketeer was made now, it would hit in a way that it that it wasn't able to hit before. Um, you know, he did Jumanji. It's like he did these big movies and somehow he was never quite a name. You know, he never became Joe Johnson in capital letters in the way that I think he wanted to be. And a lot of people around him thought he had the potential to be, uh, you know, ultimately then he went on to make Captain America, the first Avenger, you know, he helped create Chris Evans as Captain America for Marvel studios. And, you know, still, it's like, I think that's one of the better Marvel movies, but Johnson is still kind of in the shadows. You know, he's not out there as as a big name, which is kind of, an, you know, he's an interesting uh, story in, in Hollywood. But he makes Jurassic Park 3, and he makes it in a way that he does stuff, which is like this kind of big genre movie thing. And in that respect, I think it works. I think it's, I think, like I said, it's a fun, perfectly entertaining movie, and that's enough, uh, but maybe it's not enough if you need to be a Jurassic Park movie. 
It comes out on July 18th of 2001, opening to 50 million. So well behind that 72 million uh, holiday opening weekend from the Lost World Jurassic Park, but about on par to that first Jurassic Park movie. But it tops out at $181 million. Doesn't even hit the $200 million mark for a franchise that in its previous entries had the number one and number two spot of their respective years. Jurassic Park 3 is the number seven film of 2001 behind movies like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Shrek, Monster Sync, Rush Hour 2, The Mummy Returns, and Pearl Harbor. To give you an idea of a very sort of weird eclectic mix of studio films, to give you an idea of the sort of films that are performing better than this title. For me, Russ, I remember very, very little of this movie. As I read up on it, I was really surprised to find that Alexander Payne, hot <laughs> off the success of his breakthrough film uh, Election, which is, it was his uh, second directorial effort, actually has a writing credit on this. I had mm -hmm. no idea this happened. Um, kind of weird connection there. Of course, Laura Dern, uh, who was in the original Jurassic Park, was involved in the first Alexander Payne movie, uh, Citizen Ruth, back in 1996. So it's, it's an odd sort of situation here of a name that I wouldn't really expect to be involved in a big Hollywood movie after breaking out uh, in the art house scene, but he takes a writing credit in something that doesn't really work. We're going to see this actually develop more with the Jurassic World movies of Universal going into that well of interesting indie directors and seeing what they can bring to the franchise. Alexander Payne's participation is something that doesn't exactly translate for me uh, here at all. You talk about Alexander Payne, you know, you go forward and it's, it's what, 15 years before Jurassic World comes out. And in that interim, there are development efforts for a fourth Jurassic Park movie that for many years come to naught. The most notorious of which is a script co-authored by John Sayles, uh, who, you know, began his career working with Roger Corman. You know, he did some monster movies. He wrote the movie Alligator. I think, uh, you know, he, he wrote these big ridiculous, you know, or these small ridiculous genre movies for guys like Roger Corman, but ultimately, ultimately made his own name as an art house director. But, you know, ultimately John Sayles co-authors a Jurassic Park 4 script in which dinosaurs are crossbred with humans and they have guns. And <laughs> it's like, you talk about these movies don't work when you take them into a city and Jurassic Park 4 this one concept. I've read this script. It's uh, it's out there. You can find it, and uh, <laughs> it's insane. And that's all we'll say about that. There's there are plenty of articles about it out there on the web. But that's where things could have gone, and perhaps for obvious reasons, that movie didn't get made. Because the performance of Jurassic Park three is a disappointment. Uh, it doesn't hit that two hundred million dollar mark. It, it, it's good, but we're looking at a movie that makes about slightly over half of the domestic run of the original Jurassic Park. This is a franchise at this point that looks dead. It looks like it needs to be uh, reinvigorated. There are a lot of pitches, like you say, a lot of developments on making Jurassic Park 4, on relaunching the franchise, but it takes a long time to get that off the ground. And when it does, uh, it comes out in a very different uh, time, I think, here in the movie industry. It comes out in 2015, 14 years that's marked by this new 
rise of the IP franchise, uh, where everyone is trying to get, every single studio is trying to get a new franchise under its wings, launch shared universes. Universal actually taps Colin Trevorrow to direct this movie, who at this point has only made one low-budget indie film. Did you watch Safety Not Guaranteed when it came out in 2012? I did. Yeah, what, what I did. What was the, I liked the reaction it. of that? Yeah, because that, that, you know, I think turned some heads. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good little movie. This was happening in this era. There was This was this place where major studios were mining Sundance and similar mm-hmm. festivals for talent. It was not unusual in the mid-2010s to see somebody get hired to do a movie like Jurassic World where they'd done maybe two movies, you know? It's like, uh, you know, John Watts, who did Spider-Man for Marvel, he had done one movie. This was a thing that was happening a lot at the time. And Colin Trevorrow is interesting. You know, he's done this movie, Safety Not Guaranteed, which does very well at Sundance. It, you know, wins an Independent Spirit Award later. It wins a Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. It picks up a Screenwriting Award. Prior to that, many years before that, Trevorrow had sold a spec script to DreamWorks. Um, Mm. So, you know, there's like a weird seed that's almost been planted here. But Trevorrow gets a stamp of approval from Spielberg. Yeah, and the the film re-engages interest from audiences. It is actually the highest grossing movie of 2015, edging out Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens in calendar year grosses. We have to say that because... Star Wars Episode Seven comes out in mid-December, so the bulk of its earnings come through the following year. But for films that made money throughout 2015, Jurassic World ends up atop the box office. It's a huge win for Universal, and it helps establish Chris Pratt as a leading man. Uh, Chris Pratt, who I think really broke through the culture here in the United States, with an ensemble role in the sitcom comedy Parks and Recreation. He was known as the uh, chubby, lovable guy in a, <laughs> in a half an hour uh, network sitcom. Then I think we were all surprised when he shows up at Zero Dark Thirty and kills Osama Bin Laden. I didn't see that coming. That was, that was I think, a surprise to us all. And uh, after doing that, he shows up in outer space in Guardians of the Galaxy And there is a charisma to him. There's an appeal to him that even when we watch his uh, voice performance in the Lego movie, this is an animated film where he voices the protagonist, there is a charisma and star quality to Chris Pratt that is, I think, very endearing for, for the public. And Jurassic World really helps drive that. And honestly, I think that's part of this film's success. We can go into it, but I think looking at all the movies here... Jurassic World is, for me, the true sequel to Jurassic Park. If I could sort of like Halloween franchise retcon a bunch of sequels, I would retcon everything except Jurassic World. I'd go Jurassic Park to Jurassic World and just move from there. Uh, What was your reaction to this film coming up? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's correct. I think that this is clearly the place where they're... Well, for one... This movie directly engages with those themes that you're talking about when we're talking about the first movie, the idea of the theme park, the intersection with capitalism, bad decisions being made in the pursuit of money, 
all of this stuff happening, it's like, this is a very proper sequel to Jurassic Park in the sense that it's like, well, okay, what if we actually got to the point of a park really being open? What's going to happen? The, you know, the charisma of Pratt and also the charisma of Bryce Dallas Howard, who co-stars in the movie as the woman who's basically the, the park's general uh, director, who finds herself uh, in a very difficult position when things break down. You know, they work together. There's there's an element of this movie that almost feels kind of like retrograde. There's aspects of this movie that feel like they're almost like pulp illustrations from a sci-fi novel from the 50s, you know? Uh, there was a lot made of, like, Bryce Dallas Howard's character running through the jungle in high heels and stuff like that, where it was like, yeah, you know, maybe maybe some impractical decisions were made here. It has this movie has great set pieces. It has effects that eclipse the other two sequels, which is not a surprise, but they are pretty significant. And it also has, in the sense that it has some returning elements like the original T-Rex, you know, it's like it, it makes its relationship to Jurassic Park unabashedly clear. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been this cultural shift in the sense of you know, you go from the lost world when it's like, oh, we don't necessarily do sequels. Um, and a sequel almost feels like slumming in a way. And by 2015, you've got this scenario where things have really changed culturally. You know, people are like, you know what? I'm going to go see Motley Crue because I liked Motley Crue when I was a kid. I liked Jurassic Park when I was a kid. I'm going to go see the new Jurassic. It's like the nostalgia thing hasn't merely become kind of a driver, it is maybe the key driver. And it's not just acceptable, it's kind of expected and and encouraged. And it's a it's a big shift, you know, and it and that causes that's part of a shift in the business and what movies get made and what other things are out there. But yeah, this movie really embraces being a Jurassic Park sequel and it and in some ways it tries to outdo Spielberg's movie. I don't think it has a prayer of doing that, but you know, it certainly has its own sense of charisma. And let's not forget that 2013 re-release of the original Jurassic Park that performs exceptionally well for a re-release. It comes out 2013, opens to 18 million, ends up grossing 45 million. This is a movie that's available everywhere, uh, but people really like to experience that original in the big screen. And I think Jurassic World really takes advantage of that goodwill from fans that we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast. I I end up really liking this movie, and it does really well in the box office. We mentioned uh, that it topped the 2015 calendar year box office chart, opens to $208 million. That means that in the opening weekend of Jurassic World, it outgrosses the entire lifetime run of Jurassic Park 3, and that ends up being, (laughs) to date, the most effective Jurassic Park movie at the box office with $652 million domestic. If we look at that global number, we're now in the land of global box office with uh, the evolution of the overseas market. Russ, this makes $1.6 billion worldwide. Now Universal has a new franchise in its hands. Now it has a hit. How are they going to follow it up after re-engaging fans that they lost after making bad sequels last time? Oh, no. Unfortunately, I think uh, they end up making a lot of the same mistakes once the sequel to Jurassic World comes out in 2018. Russ, what do you have to say about Jurassic World 
Fallen Kingdom that comes out in 2018. Obviously, they lean in, into the nostalgia thing even more because they get Jeff Goldblum back. It's like, oh, you like this guy? Okay, let's get him in here. He's in memes. What are memes? I don't know, but kids like him. Let's get Jeff Goldblum. And they do, and it's nice to have him back. Okay, congratulations on your paycheck, Jeff Goldblum. I'm happy for you. There's a bunch of concepts in this movie, some of which are really good and some of which make sense but are executed in a way that doesn't really click. The idea of like, oh, we're going to, you know, the, the core idea is the island where the dinosaurs have been living since the collapse of the last park is threatened by a volcano. We got to get them off. Are we going to destroy the dinosaurs or are we going to save them? A really rich guy is like, I'm going to rehouse them. And in fact, he's going to sell them. And it's like, you know what? I'm cynical. That concept makes total sense. I get it. Like some weirdo having a, a black market auction for dinosaurs. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, I think- I mean, it sounds point- it sounds like a really good James Bond movie set up to me right it, now. It just, does. Just bring 007 to whatever island with a volcano. He's got to fight the dinosaurs. Maybe those John Sales gun dinos- Maybe they show up. There there are some threads from that script that are 100% reflected in this in Fallen Kingdom. No question. But yeah, you know, that thing of like, okay, they call it Jurassic World now, which tells you, hey, it's not just an island anymore. But fundamentally, it is a Jurassic Park movie. And the park in the title, as you have said several times here already, is key. And I think this movie struggles with that. And then there's a cloned girl <laughs> it's like yeah what was what? up with that uh, yeah that uh, that really took this in a direction that i don't know if they're going to continue that thread narratively because uh i made that made no sense i don't i mean it makes sense it's to me it does make sense because it's like okay you have cloned dinosaurs what's the next step you clone people Clearly, like the, this in a, you know, being rooted in the imagination of the guy who created Westworld. It's like, yes, okay, B follows A. I totally get it. But the way it's executed in the movie, it almost seems like the movie is like, no, 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 she's not a clone. It's a, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's weird. When you've, when you have giant dinosaurs running around, I think you have to embrace your wildest genre leanings. And this movie, I would argue, doesn't really do that. No, it goes off the rails, man. You really, for something this fantastical to work, at least in my opinion, you have to put in some boundaries there for your suspension of disbelief to really fire at all cylinders. Once you put these things, you know, inside a Victorian haunted house, it's really hard for me to engage there with that. I, I don't know. I think it, you really need to constrain yourself and in many ways make a smaller movie kind of like they did with yes. Jurassic Park 3 for this to be more effective for the viewer because this just opens it up in a way that I just couldn't follow throughout the film. This movie really struggles with balancing these kind of the globetrotting aspect with the chase aspect with a devious dinosaur selling plot with a deep in the background a cloned cloned girl subplot with the characters introduced in Jurassic World plus Jeff Goldblum returning plus other characters this movie's got a lot in it and it doesn't really uh, make space for everything and consequently a lot of it feels underserved and a lot of it feels like it's just sort of shoved in there because they had gone far enough with the animatic designs and we're like, well, we've committed to this. The effect seems already making this, so we have to just keep making it. And yeah, this movie has some moments, unquestionably, but as a whole, I don't think it works. 
What did you think of uh, Juan Antonio Bayona, the Spanish filmmaker, coming in and, and making this movie? This guy who really broke through with a mid-budget international co-production uh, called uh, The Impossible. That came out, what, in the early 2010s, 2012, 2014, around that point. Uh, he showed some impressive skills in that movie. They give him this big-budget movie. What did you think of that decision? I mean, I, it's consistent with how we got Jurassic World in the first place. I think he was undoubtedly more experienced than uh, Trevorrow was when he made Jurassic World. I mean, Bayona had done uh, that movie, The Orphanage, also right, a haunted house right. movie yeah. produced by Guillermo del Toro. A good movie, a very effective movie. So it's like you you jump from that to 10 years later, he's making uh, you know a whole haunted house uh, sequence with dinosaurs. It's like, yeah, okay, I get it. I see where you're coming from. We're almost in Jurassic World 3 territory here. <laughs> and I think if they had gone more fully into that that full genre thing, it would have been, it might have worked better because I think it would have felt more whole. Mm. So I don't think he's the problem. And I don't think that hiring him was a mistake. But I think that this movie tries to do too many things. I think it's trying to satisfy a number of divergent interests. And in the end, those impulses and interests are not unified into a coherent picture. The reception and the reaction from the audience at a press screening is going to be very, very different than seeing one of these movies with a real crowd on opening weekend. We say it all the time. I personally try to avoid, unless I'm on assignment or I have to do it for work, I try to avoid watching movies in press screenings uh, just as a thing to do because it's really hard to gauge. Obviously, I'm in the business of reception of uh, movie theaters, <laughs> understanding the, the public's reaction to films. So that's going to be the, the central approach to my connection to the job. And um, I think my reaction to the film is uh, suffers uh, because uh, I saw these movies at press screenings uh, to the point that I'm kind of leaning towards seeing this third one with an audience just to understand what that reception, what that reaction is like, because critically, because Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom didn't work wholly, I think in our journalist bubble, this franchise doesn't hold the same weight than it does with the public at large. Is that fair to say from what you're saying? That is that is a, certainly a fair concept to raise. No question. My argument would be that people like Chris Pratt, they like dinosaurs, they like big event movies. These three movies check all those boxes. They like nostalgia. They like the original Jurassic Park. And the, you know, all three of these movies lean increasingly further into the nostalgia aspect. You know, you have explicit visual references to the first movie in Jurassic World. You have a character, you have multiple characters returning, actually. The original Jurassic World also had B.D. Wong, who returns as uh, the scientist who worked for John Hammond in the original Jurassic Park. You know, so it's like, uh, his significance, I think, to fans was maybe not as oversized as that of like Jeff Goldblum, Sam Neill, and, and uh, Laura Dern's characters. But anyway, you have these uh, these movies take progressively bigger steps into nostalgia as they bring people back into the fold. And you know that's fine. It's like the I think I look at these movies at this point in a way that's maybe more akin to the way I look at the. Michael Bay Transformers movies. Mm. Um, 
you know, years ago, I don't remember which movie it was. I interviewed Aaron Kruger, who wrote a bunch of those Transformers movies for Michael Bay. And we were talking about just the conception of them and the, the how they're built from the ground up. And Kruger said something that really helped sort of reshape my take on those Transformers movies, which are movies that I don't like, but they're also not for me. And that's okay. And what Kruger said was, Michael Bay doesn't see other movies as his competition. He sees his competition as theme parks or vacations or these things that families go and do together. And that's what he's kind of building those Transformers movies to be. And in that respect, I think that's also kind of what these newer Jurassic movies are as well. It's like they are, you know, whereas where Spielberg's original movie is, set in and thematically about a theme park and about the idea of like, how far do you go to literally capture an audience? These newer movies are less about that. And they are just that, you know, they are theme parks in their own way. And it's a different way of looking at it. It's maybe not something that is very appealing to me, someone who doesn't really like theme parks, but clearly that is a thing that a lot of people like. And, and it's a thing that an audience you know, maybe it doesn't matter if the audience is like, you know what, I I saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and I had a good time and I haven't spent a whole lot of time about thinking about it in the years since, but like, who cares? That's not what it's for. And right. and that's okay. And I think the, the audience, or a large sector of the audience still has that connection that, that we talk about. Yeah. They do see this as a nice escape. And we look at those box office numbers for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And yes, they do fall behind and they actually fall behind by a good percentage when compared to the first Jurassic World title. The Fallen Kingdom movie opens to $148 million on June 22, 2018. Ends up topping out at 417 million here in North America, significantly behind the 650 million that we had for the first Jurassic World movie. But worldwide, the international audience still turns out and lifts this movie to a $1.3 billion total. And earlier in this episode, uh, you can go back and, and catch up on what that relationship is with audiences overseas to this title, which I think, to be perfectly fair, is stronger than what we may see here in North America. And I just have to go back to my own experience, seeing the first two movies in Latin America, the first one in Guatemala, the second one while I'm living in Mexico, and what this type of experience meant to me while I was enjoying the, the air conditioning, the surround sound, everything, all the bells and whistles of a movie theater, I think these are global blockbusters in the way that those Transformers movies that you mentioned are also built. And I think that really speaks to the uh, longevity of, of what this franchise has become. Starting from a Michael Crichton adaptation, that was the original conception of what this was, with a lot of Crichton roots uh, embedded from Westworld, having that Spielberg uh, experience of having the children driving the narrative, having this big special effects laden experience, to now a global IP designed for international audiences. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Studios, the Box Office Company, and Record Edits Podcast. New episodes come out every Thursday, so don't forget to rate us, like us, subscribe us, share if you like what you're listening to, and we will talk to you again next week. Thank you.